Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, August 1st. Could last week's federal government cabinet shuffle mean positive change for how Canadian veterans are looked after? That question and getting support for vets facing homelessness are the objectives of a new report researched and written by a group of concerned McGill University grad students. We speak to one of them about the study's findings. After nearly a month of negotiations, an agreement has finally been reached to end the costly BC ports labour dispute and strike. We'll talk about the fallout of the strike felt across the country with Barry Eidlin, Associate Professor of Sociology at McGill University. And go west, young man, woman, and child. Home buyers seem to be drawn to Alberta with Calgary and Edmonton, now the top searched cities in Canada. But what's behind the migration? We break it down with Corinne Lyle, broker and owner of Royal LePage Benchmark in Calgary. Last week's cabinet shuffle poses more opportunity for change. One of the key objectives would be to get more support for veterans facing homelessness in our country. Graduate students with the University of McGill have highlighted that issue. They're calling now for the new Minister of Veterans Affairs and the Minister of Housing to adopt new and innovative approaches to end the problem of homelessness amongst our vets. Joining us is one of the students that put together the report, Alison Clement. Good morning, Alison. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Sue. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Can you break down the report a little bit for us? You know, sort of how did you put it together and and we'll get to some of the findings of it? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of our graduate program as Masters of Public Policy students, we're assigned um, a real-life social policy issue. And so me and my teammates, there's three of us, uh, we were assigned the issue of veterans' homelessness in Canada. And as we know in Canada, there's a huge housing crisis happening. Over 235,000 Canadians are currently unhoused every single night. But actually, veterans are two to three times more likely to experience homelessness than the general population. So this is obviously a very important issue. Um, and it was just a topic of interest that, uh, that our school had identified. And, and that's why we decided to dig deeper into the research. Are we seeing year over year increased numbers then of vets that are, are experiencing homelessness? The numbers have increased, but I think one of the main problems about the issue of veteran homelessness in general is the lack of understanding of the magnitude and the scope of the issue. Data around homelessness in general is very you know, challenging to collect, but what we found with veterans is that they're a very unique um, population group. So they face extra challenges than other Canadians might face, such as you know, transitioning out of the military, they're, self, they're reluctant to self-identify, they often have feelings of uh, loss of purpose, uh, loss of sense of identity. So it's really critical that um, the government increase efforts to, to make sure that data collection is, is really important to understand the issue. Um, so we are seeing the number increase, but at the same time, we're not exactly clear on the exact number of how many veterans are experiencing homelessness. Right now, the estimates are ranging between 2,400 to over 10,000. Wow. So, you know, one of the first steps is really trying to increase data collection and just really get a better understanding of the veterans that are experiencing homelessness in Canada. There was a program that the feds released earlier this year, wasn't there, uh, aimed at reducing homelessness among our vets? D- did that program not do enough then? I mean, it's a great step, and it's a right step in the right direction. Um, the government, which is a great step, has identified veterans as a priority group in their national housing strategy. So this is a great sign. They've committed 80 million, around 80 million dollars um, in May, uh, to outroll this veterans homelessness program, which again is a great step. But what we found is that this program puts a lot of the onus and the responsibility on the veteran-serving organizations on the ground, and these organizations are already facing limited capacity. 
Um, so while it's really critical to continue funding local programs and, and initiatives, uh, we need to see more federal action on the federal side of really taking a leadership in this area and creating their own federal programs and supports and policies that really add to the additional work that the other veteran serving organizations are doing. So more can be done for sure. Allison, you and your fellow graduate students, I mean, did, did you come up with, you know, ideas, concrete ideas that you could put forward or, or was it more just sort of a, a deep dive into into the numbers and, and the situation of our, our homeless veterans? Absolutely. So we definitely did a deep dive, a deep dive but we definitely came up with five um, policy objectives. Within that, there's a number of different policy recommendations that the federal government, not just Veterans Affairs, but the Ministry of Housing, um, CMHC and the other relevant partners can also take into consideration to move forward. And I think really um, a lot of the focus of our recommendations have really just been to ensure that there's federal leadership on the issue. So we're recommending that Veterans Affairs Canada take primary leadership on veteran homelessness because we believe that they're the best connected to understand the issues of veterans and what they're facing. Again, going back to the limited understanding of the scope and magnitude of the issue, we've made a number of recommendations to improve data collection, working closely with veteran-serving organizations to improve the data sharing and how we can capture more information on these individuals who are facing these challenges. And then again, there's a lot of what we found is a lot of fragmented policies and programs that are happening across the country. So again, really important work being done, but we really need to see, from the, starting from the federal level, a coordinated and preventative approach to the issue. I think right now a lot of the programs and the policies that we've seen and that our team has come across has been really focused on treating veterans who are currently experiencing homeless tonight. And while that is absolutely critical, um, there needs to be also a huge push on the prevention side. So what does that mean? That means supporting uh, members when they're transitioning out of the Canadian military back into civilian life. And that also means taking care of members as they're serving. Through, um, through their military experience. So identifying some of these pre-existing risk factors while they're in service, creating programs and policies to help them, and really ensuring that when they transition out into the civilian um, world that, that they do have all of the supports and services they need. There have been lots of criticisms about this federal government not meeting the needs of our veterans for sure. So this is, I don't think, a a terrible surprise to most people. Uh, But, you know, I think what is surprising is I look at some of the findings and some of the, you know, those those five um, approaches that you're talking about. That, you know, women and gender diverse veterans experiencing homelessness, that number is is quite surprising. I think we have sort of a, a picture in our head of what the typical veteran looks like. And it's not yeah. that way necessarily. Absolutely. And that's actually a great question because one of, the, uh, one of the main questions we've had during our research is why veterans? Why veterans over other priority groups? And of course, all priority groups are important. But what's really unique about veterans is that a veteran cuts across all priority groups. Who is a Canadian veteran? A Canadian veteran is a woman. It is someone who identifies as Indigenous. It is, some, it is individuals with different sexual orientations, cultural backgrounds and races. So, you know, what's really important about um, taking approach to fixing this issue is that this is an issue that cuts across all different Canadians, every kind of Canadian. So it's really critical. And especially just to mention on the women um, side of it is that, you know, 16.2% of the total veteran population are women, but they actually represent 30% of veterans experiencing homelessness. And what we found is that a lot of the services, not just at Veterans Affairs or the federal government, but even shelters and food banks, a lot of these services are designed to meet the needs of single males. 
So, for example, when you have a, a female with dependents or um, any other di di gender diverse individual, they have a hard time, you know, interacting with these services. And, and, and so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to ensure that all these different population groups that make up a Canadian veteran are being serviced and supported. Great points and important that you brought this to the forefront. Thank you so much for, for breaking it down for us, Alison. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thanks, Alison Clement, Master of Public Policy grad at McGill University and the Max Bell School of Public Policy. After nearly a month of negotiations, the hope is the third time will be the charm that puts an end to a costly Canadian labour dispute. The International Longshore Workers Union and BC Maritime Employers Association say they've secured a negotiated tentative deal that would end the BC port strike. To break it all down, we're joined this morning by Barry Eidlin, Associate Professor of Sociology at McGill University. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Sue. Good to be here. Can you break down the strike, how things started and, and the issues that were at play? Yeah, so what we're dealing with here is a, a contract fight that really addresses some of the life or death issues for what work is going to be like on the dock in the years going forward. The big issues that are driving the workers to strike are, number one, uh, port automation, and number two, contracting out. And if we zoom out to this, we see that these are issues that affect a broad swath of Canadians. Uh, when we think about the future of work, how we deal with technological change, how we deal with employment relations and who's the boss uh, and, uh, you know, the control of our working conditions is something that I think a lot of Canadians are, are, are affected by. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people were worried about the strike that it might affect our supply chain and, and was, you know, perhaps running on too long. But you're right, I think maybe in a way as well, Canadians looking at it thinking, you know, could that be me? Could AI or automation take over my job? And maybe I, I ought to get behind these workers. Do you think that that was sort of, you know, how they were able to stay out so long? Exactly. I think that, that what we're seeing, not just with the ports, but, you know, I've been commenting on there's a, a variety of strikes going on in Canada right now. Um, and and they're dealing with a lot of these sort of core issues that don't just affect these workers, but a broad array of, of Canadians, whether we're talking about wage stagnation, growing inequality, uh, you know, scheduling problems, all that kind of stuff. And so I, I really see this dock uh, strike as as part of that broader trend. Some experts saying, though, the Fed's gover the federal government's approach to the BC port labor dispute was kind of like sweeping problems under the rug. That the um, you know the the minister was actually ordered to impose an end to the dispute if a negotiated resolution wasn't possible. Do you think that this resolution, and we'll get into sort of the details of the deal that we know at this point, do you think the resolution is going to be strong enough moving forward to to keep things from like this happening again? Yeah, I think what we've seen, and I think a lot of the reason for this sort of confusing back and forth with is the strike on, is it off, is the deal on, is it off, really shows the way that um, that sort of government intervention and this threat of back-to-work legislation really distorts the collective bargaining process because it really puts the thumb on the scale for the employers. If the employers know they can just run to the government for an imposed settlement, they have no incentive to actually engage in real bargaining and actually try to address workers' concerns. Now, we don't know the content of the deal uh, that was announced, but all we've heard from the employers is about the wage package. But the wage package is not what the 
concern is for the workers and the reason that they're rejecting the agreement. It has to do with those really existential issues about how the work is going to be done in the years forward. So if the employers are not addressing those core existential issues that are workplace issues, I don't see the longshore workers accepting that deal. Though it does seem like what we're hearing, it looks like that they will accept it. But what what happens if they reject it? You know, does the government legislate them back anyway? Well, I mean, that would be, I mean, <laughs> that would be perhaps uh, what what the tradition would be. But, you know, Canada has this long tradition that has garnered, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, criticism from organizations like the International Labor Organization for its sort of trigger-happy approach to using back-to-work legislation to solve these problems. And the problem is, that, as, I, as I suppose you, you hinted at earlier on, is that this doesn't imposing agreements doesn't solve the underlying issues. It just sweeps them under the rug. And so if that is the issue, you know, and I think what we need to understand here is, number one, the employers can resolve this dispute by coming to an agreement that addresses workers' concerns. It's not only on the workers and their union to 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 sort of concede something. Number two, what we're talking about here when it comes to back-to-work legislation are constitutional uh, charter-protected rights uh, to collective bargain, bargain collectively and to strike. And so, you know, if we're going to have charter rights. They need to be charter rights for everyone, not just until we decide that they're inconvenient. Do you think, I mean, this is not the only strike that we're seeing in Canada right now. Do you think this is just, you know, a, a show of strength by unions? Or is, the, is there more a play here for Canadians and, and realizing that, you know, they need to stand up and, and, and maybe fight for a little more of what they believe is, should be theirs? Yeah, I think what we're seeing here is a culmination of sort of what I coming together is sort of three different tendencies, right? I think we've got this trend over the past several decades of all these problems piling up at work, whether it's wage stagnation, whether it's scheduling, whether it's technological issues, whether it's surveillance or management harassment. Um, it appears in different ways in different workplaces, but there's this sort of trend of this sort of erosion of work quality and erosion of buying power. Then the pandemic, I think, crystallized a lot of that and really brought a lot of these problems to the fore in a way and made them visible in ways that they perhaps weren't before. And you had that sort of contradiction of these sort of essential workers, which includes the port workers, you know, who kept the ports operating. Um, and, and, and they're sort of called essential but treated as disposable. And then, so, and then you combine that with the current situation where we have a pretty tight labor market, which makes workers harder to um, replace and increases their bargaining power. And you have the recipe for uh, a, a lot more fight back amongst workers, not just on the ports, but in other industries across Canada. We'll see if this deal goes ahead and if things start uh, rolling once again at the BC port. Thank you so much for breaking it down this morning. Appreciate your time, Barry. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Barry Eidlin, McGill University Associate Professor of Sociology. Head west, young man, woman, child, everybody seems to be doing it. Real estate company Royal LePage says stats show Calgary and Edmonton now the top searched cities in Canada for relocation. So what's behind it? Corinne Lyle is a broker and owner at Royal LePage Benchmark in Calgary, joins us with a little bit of insight. Hi, Corinne. Thanks so much for joining us. 
No, thanks for having me. Uh, okay, so Calgary, Edmonton, top two most searched cities in all of Canada. That makes it a pretty big deal. Why are people so intrigued, do you think, with living in Alberta as a whole, but the city of Calgary particularly? Well, I, I think that the affordability for a big city or big cities, I guess in respect of Edmonton as well, uh, relative to the rest of the country, has been probably the biggest draw. I mean, Calgary, I think, too, there is definitely a lot of opportunity now in terms of employment and the ability to, I think, work anywhere if you're a remote worker really was pushed during COVID. And that enabled people to want to live wherever they want to live. And Calgary has always been a place, um, you know, despite what we've experienced with the energy market, that people love it because it's an incredible lifestyle and great place to raise your family. You're close to the mountains and lots of uh, amenities in the city as well. So yeah. great place. I think, unfortunately, the word is out. People are, are finding out yeah. about our secret. <laughs> um, in your business, in your day to day, where are you seeing most people coming from when they want? wanting to move to Alberta? Mostly from Ontario. Mm. I mean, certainly we're getting people from BC as well, uh, but Ontario seems to be the biggest draw uh, from where our, where people are coming from. And, and would you say that it is sort of as a result of COVID that, you know, people are allowed to work online now or, or virtually, I suppose, and, and don't have to be in the city where they actually are employed? Do you think that that's part of, a big part of it? I think that's where it started. I'm not sure if that's still completely... The reason now, but certainly because of COVID, that really pushed people to go, oh, okay, well, my, my company is allowing me to work wherever I want to work remotely. Well, that gives me the ability to move anywhere, I guess, in the country and sometimes in some cases the world, right? And so when people realize that they can do that, why not move to a city where you can possibly move into a house for, you know, less than... At this point, let's say six hundred thousand. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, it was probably closer to four hundred thousand, but of course, prices have gone up. I mean, I'm from Toronto, so I know what prices are like and have always been like. So it, it is a big difference here in the city of Calgary and just across Alberta. But you know, what does that mean for with all these people who are coming into our province? What does that mean for Calgarians, for Albertans now looking for a home here in the city? It just makes it that much more difficult for us too. Well, that's true. I. But this is what I'll say is that we have been lagging anyhow behind the rest of the rest of the country. And inevitably, some of this was going to occur anyway. Maybe it's occurred a little more rapidly than it would have if the pandemic hadn't come along. But, this, you know, since we had our last recession, which none of the country, rest of the country really experienced the same way, maybe Saskatchewan, but... Alberta really then was impacted by what happened with the energy market. And, and we ended up being in, a, in this recession where our prices came down. We really lagged behind everybody else. And so by 2019, we were starting to recover from that. And I think that we were on a really positive trajectory. But then with COVID, that really launched us out of the pandemic. And, of course, then we started seeing people start moving here in 2020, 2021 now onwards from there and so instead of maybe having what i'd call a healthy increase so a healthy increase would be probably between two to five percent in a year of uh increase in pricing is now more like 10 11 12 percent and so i think what has happened is just it just increased at a much more rapid pace mm -hmm. than maybe it necessarily would have um 
because of the pandemic. Corinne, what are people after? Are they after condos? Are they after single family homes, sort of price range? What are they after right now? I think ideally people would love to be in single family homes. I, that's that's really where people like to start. If they they can't afford it, or maybe they're in a situation where, you know, they this is their first time home buyers. Maybe they'll look at a condo. And what's happened actually, which has been positive for I think for the for the city of Calgary, is that prior to the pandemic, so let's say 20, 2018, 2019, uh, we had almost eight nine months of inventory of condominiums. And that was a result of uh, when our market was really good and developers were were building new condos. And all of a sudden, you know, the recession hit and we ended up with a with a a lot of inventory of condominiums. But now what's happened is because of our prices going up and and people may be looking at alternative styles of property, the condominium market has really uh, come back. And I would say in some parts, not all of Calgary, but in, in many of the places in Calgary is that prices have come back to what they were in 2014, mm. which is fabulous. Uh, we're now down, though, to about two months of inventory, which is which is tough for people. But that goes for the entire market. Uh, we're, we're under two months of inventory for the entire city of Calgary and the surrounding communities, which is which is tough on people and, and obviously tough on Calgarians. That's for sure. Is there a trend out there for the age, age range of people you're seeing moving to Alberta, to Calgary and what they're after? Is it just sort of everybody at this point? Or are, we, are you seeing young people or are they avoiding it because they simply can't afford it? No, I would say it's mostly younger people. I, Everybody, for sure, but I, I think that people are coming here for also the job opportunity. And so to raise a young family, just anecdotally, myself, I had a, a, a young couple with a young son who moved here from Vancouver recently. And they, the the husband was able to work remotely and the wife got a job at the university. And so she was, they, they both were able to move here because of, because of job opportunities and to be closer to one of the family families that uh, um, one of their family members so it worked out really well for them well uh, people are flocking to calgary and to alberta as a whole we know the reason why it's a great city thank you so much for joining us this morning appreciate it thank you for having me thanks corinne lyle broker and owner royal lepage benchmark in calgary 